Okay, this morning we'll hopefully finish Acts chapter 20. I have a, that's kind of a bold <laughs> claim here, but you, you never know when I do it. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together as your children to search the scriptures, to comfort, encourage, exhort, and uh, discuss our mutual salvation. May we have a love for the truth, a love for you who revealed the truth, and a love for one another. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the very end, Paul is in Miletus. Gathered with him there are the elders from Ephesus. And Paul is giving what some have called his farewell address to the Ephesians. And in this, which we've been on for a long time, we see revealed some of the key ideas, practices, beliefs, and so on that apply to the church. It turns out that the church at Ephesus is central in the New Testament because of how many times it's mentioned, where and when. If we get far enough, I'll show you the last one, which is in the Revelation, frankly. But we looked at First and Second Timothy, which was written to Timothy, who was at Ephesus. I've preached through Ephesians, which obviously applies. And so this is where we learn a lot about the biblical definition of the church. Now today, Paul's financial practices, Acts 20, 33, 35. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Now, some of this also came up in 1 Corinthians, when I recently was dealing with Paul's material in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, where he talked about the laborers worthy of his hire, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. But on the other hand, Paul did not accept financial help from the Corinthians because then they would be considering him a client and certain people with bad ideas would demand their hearing. And when I was preaching through that, I mentioned out mentioned what's called in politics influence peddling. But it also happens in any kind of institution, including educational ones, seminaries, churches, or whatever. And that is that wealthy uh, patron donors who have status in the organization end up on various boards like regents or whatever they may have in educational seminaries and uh, colleges and universities and graduate schools and give massive amounts of money, but then demand that things be done their way in, in trade for the money. So Paul refused money from the Corinthians because there were so many there that did have bad ideas that he needed to correct and he didn't want any conflict of interest. So he engaged in tent making with Aquila and Priscilla, as we saw in Acts, and this happened at Corinth. 
And also we saw because of the Isthmian Games that that business was reasonable there. People needed tents. So he coveted no one silver or gold. Of course, there's an echo there of the 10th commandment to not covet. He worked hard, took care of his own needs. And he did receive gifts from other churches, but was most interested in yet another offering for Jerusalem. Now, I looked at a lot of material here. And uh, uh, Eric, could you look up Romans 15, 26 and 27? I think that there were two such offerings. There was one on the occasion of the famine that had been predicted by Agabus that happened in 49 AD, which is collaborated in secular history. And there was another offering that when Paul actually gets to Jerusalem with, it doesn't really come up much because there was a revolt and an upheaval. So go ahead. Uh, Eric, go ahead. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them what has been collected. Yeah, indebted to minister their. Oh, I'm sorry, material blessings. I skipped down a a line, sorry about that. (laughs) Material needs. Yes. Now, I think one of the important things that we find from the church of Ephesus and Paul's teachings there in the book of Ephesians, and then here in Acts, going uh, from Ephesus and over to the peninsula, the Italian was now Italy, and now back over to Miletus and on his way to Jerusalem, his big concern, huge concern, was that the church wasn't divided into two. A Jewish church with headquarters in Jerusalem and a Gentile church based somewhere else. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, I think in verse 5, the one new man. That is, the one new man is all who are in Christ redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, whether they be Gentile or Jew. And is that the correct uh, cross-reference, Ephesians 2.5? I think it is. Uh, 2.15. 2.15. Yes. Thank you. Always correct me, because it will save me doing it later. Um, 2.15. So there you have the one new man. And this is still his concern. And we'll see now, I'm going to go on to chapter 21. When Paul gets there, and James was the most prominent person there in Jerusalem, he's going to warn Paul, there's a big problem here. And some who believed in Christ were zealous for the law. And Paul did things that, and I mentioned this in 1 Corinthians, that you would think, when he said, I became all things to all men to save some, he comes and does things he normally wouldn't do. Takes an oath, does everything Jewish to get into the, to diffuse the situation. It still didn't work. It blew up. It blew up when he got there. And he ended up appealing and he ended up all the way appealing to Rome. So being free from the love of money is essential. Now, how does this apply? Because 
it wasn't considered a sin in the New Testament to take care of the preachers. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. We saw in 1 Second Timothy. But what is a sin is covetousness. And that's mentioned here. And what is a sin is to be doing Christian ministry for the purpose of gaining wealth in and of itself. And to have the same sort of motivation that con artists and scam people in the world have to run religious processes that will gain wealth for the preacher. That's wicked. And it's still going on. It's going on into perpetuity. Even when people are caught, they don't quit. There was a guy by the name of Popoff. Have anybody heard of him besides me? He got caught because he had plants in the men's room and he'd listen to people talking and they'd tell details. Well, what are you doing? Oh, I just started an, my, my whatever, some detail. My grandmother has cancer or whatever. And so then they'd relay that via electronics over to Peter Popoff, the prophet, preacher, whatever he was. And he'd say, I have a word of knowledge. You right there. Your mother has cancer. God gave me a word of knowledge. And then they'd, they'd do all of this. And he got caught at it, exposed, I believe, John Ankerberg exposed this. And so he lost a lot of his ability to do that. But guess what? I, I have trouble sleeping. I'm up at 3 in the morning. I turn on this religious channel and the high numbers of cable. Here's Peter Popoff still doing it. And he's telling, he has people on there, I had this terrible need, I couldn't pay my bills, and I sent money to Peter Popoff, and now I've got 50, I got this check in the mail, whatever it was. And so, again, it's not logical. These court testimonials are not logical. They could be anything. I put this magnet under my pillow, and now I sleep better. You can't prove cause and effect that way. So, in order to avoid shame and disgrace to the gospel, preachers, elders, and really anyone who's a Christian, we need to avoid covetousness. And we need to believe that what Jesus Christ says is true. That we're far better off with an eternal reward, however modest we may live. It's not a sin that some people become wealthy, and I don't want to imply that, because we have data to the contrary right in Acts. And uh, you see that in Philippi. There was a wealthy businesswoman who facilitated the church in Philippi. It's not considered bad. What's at issue is motives, okay? And if I believe that if I had wealth, I'd be a lot better off than I am now, and that would make my life good and meaningful and everything good and desirable. That's covetousness. And we need to be asking God to free us from that. It's not going to be going anywhere uh, good. And the other thing is the, the flip side of it doesn't work either. Taking an oath of poverty doesn't make you pious. The practice is to be content in whatever the Lord does do 
as far as our ability to pay our bills, pay our taxes, give and whatever, to be content with that and God will bless us. It's his business. It's part of providence. You're not a better Christian if you're wealthy. You're not a worse one if you're poor. But if you're covet, covetous, that's sinful. And that we need to be free from. Does that make sense? So what he does not do is covet people's wealth. And uh, that these hands minister to my own needs and to men who are with me. So he took care of his own business. I think that makes sense. Uh, as I have on my notes here, what Paul rejected was any financial arrangement that could compromise the gospel. And that's why you have somebody looking over the shoulders of whoever is in charge of the money. There's audits, there's accountability. You need that in every realm of life. Because it's amazing. People that you would never dream would take anything would end up being found um, siphoning funds off of churches. It's happened again and again and again. It shocks people. And it happens in the secular world too. There is an awful lot of people who really believe that money is the key to everything. Um, I don't believe that. In fact, I know it's not true. But that doesn't make me pious. It's just I don't believe it. That's why I've never bought a lottery ticket. Um, I don't believe it. So some people do. I have, everybody has their own problems. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, all that's in the world. It's not from the Father. So one Thessalonians, let me read this one. One Thessalonians 2, 5 and 6. Paul said this as his testimony. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we see glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. No flattering speech, no greed, no glory from men. And uh, there's things that are within liberty, you could possibly argue. But frankly, church history is filled with glory from men. And one of the ways that's time-tested and proven to gain um, support, motivation, willingness to serve is to create a glory system. And what you do is build a massive uh, structure, an organization, an institution with every form of worldly glory that anybody could want. Uh, titles, clothing, buildings, anything that looks like that's what I want. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Build that all into your religious system. And once you have that, if you're able to, if you've got enough talent, you got these arrangements, people want it. Or they want to give to somebody that has it. A holy man with robes and honor and many claims, maybe he can do something for me. Or a pious one here. Or if it, build that whole big system. But if you have this, 
Saul of Tarsus now converted. No gold or silver. Laboring with their own hands, making tents, gathering with a few people, talking about their mutual salvation. There's nothing to peddle. There's nothing to offer but the promises of God that he gives. And that's fantastic. That, that keeps us out of a lot of trouble. God's promises are greater than anything that some religious authority has to give or to offer. Yes. Um, can you hear me? Or not? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay. Uh, forgive me, elders, if this is inappropriate, but I, I do handle the church finances, but I want to tell the congregation, if you don't know, our elders have always um, put a, a barrier between giving and their knowledge. So they don't have any access, and that's by design, to who gives what in our congregation. I just think, I just respect that so much that they've taken every precaution that they can to avoid what could be sort of, you know, any influence at all. And thank I just, I'm really well, thank grateful you, for elders. that. That's the way it's, because if you don't know, you can't pander to somebody knowing what they want to have going on. And this happens in all realms. I saw it in a baseball association that I ran one time. It's amazing how people want to influence, even if it's just to get their kid a, a, to have a better position on the baseball team or whatever. People will sell out. Well, we saw that. They were Hollywood movie stars with un, all kinds of wealth. They were giving money to get their kid into some college. Did you see that? Just look at First John. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, all that is in the world. That's what is out there to be gotten. And every one of us needs to guard our own hearts. This is true about us, yes. I think the issue here is um, entitlement. Uh, does money make you more entitled to have position, or is positional uh, within an organization, does that give you a sense of entitlement to rule over others? Uh, am I well, yeah, all of the above. If you, I really think that first John where it's, is it chapter three, wherever that is, the, all that's in the world, the things that Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew, okay, all those temptations, the things that Eve saw in the garden, there's things that all of us are subject to, and they're the alternative. It could be entitlement. It could be there are people with a pet doctrine that will pay to have the preacher preach their pet doctrine. If you want my money, you're going to teach this doctrine, whatever it might be. I've seen that. Uh, it's, uh, well, I don't even want to, I can tell you stories about this, but enough of us still know the same people over the last 40 years, and I don't want to be shaming somebody else, but um, you'd be surprised what can be bought. And um, Paul's point is, don't let that be us. We don't want to be bought. That's, that's my point. It could be entitlement. It could be authority over somebody else's belief system. 
It, it could be whatever. It could be immorality. People pay for immorality. We've seen that in the news lately, haven't we? It's amazing how expensive some people's immorality is. Millions. Yeah. So the, the most, see, that's the great thing about the promises of God. The greatest things that anybody could ever have are all included in the promises of God, and you can't buy a one of them. But you won't be motivated by them if you don't believe them. If you don't really believe that uh, the least in the kingdom is greater than all of this. I've been in Matthew endlessly lately trying to get up to speed of Matthew. It's throughout Matthew. Well, why would you believe it? Because Jesus said it and he cannot lie and he's God the Son and it's true. So the eternal is more important. We have to believe that. Yes, Rich. Yeah, um, I know it's not sin to be rich. People call me rich all the time. And, uh, <laughs> play on words. All right, play on words. His name is Rich, yep. <laughs> um, but there's so much scripture. Jesus Christ goes over this. It's so hard for those who have riches and who trust in riches yeah to go to heaven like the camel through the eye of the needle. And then I think in the Beatitudes, according to the, not Matthew, but in other places, it says, woe to you who are rich now. You've received your consolation. And there's just a lot of scriptures. And wow, it's sobering, you know, to think of these scriptures. And I know that when you have money, you can get big-headed and you can kind of lord it over people like you're just saying, hey, pastor, you preach this, or I'm not given a cent, or something of that nature. But could you, and I know, Bob, you go out of your way to say it's not sin to be rich, like Lydia and others. Yeah. But could you talk about that, the dangers of having money? Well, I, the dangers are not, there's no scale of dangers based on having or not having money. The dangers are everywhere. Everything that Jesus was tempted with, I it, maybe it's coincidence, but I don't think the Bible has a lot of coincidences. But they're almost the same thing as John talks about: the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. He resisted all those temptations using Scripture. Just before his public ministry began, I think that being poor has its own version of what's tempting. Uh, yeah, there's passages about that, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And then, they, then when they heard Jesus teaching, what did they say? Who can be saved? And he said, well, with, uh, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The answer wasn't take an oath of poverty and join a commune. I didn't take an oath, but I joined the commune. I didn't make a lot of sacrifices when we moved in. I just graduated from Bible college. All we had was a mattress and a few clothes. So I didn't make a sacrifice, but I experienced communal living where nobody gets a salary. It doesn't make you more pious. You still get angry. You still offend people. You still get deceived by false teaching. You're still full of yourself if... I have plenty of that going on as a 20-something. We still need the same sanctifying grace that anybody does. 
the, what I'm saying is this, none of this is geographically dependent, financially dependent, age dependent, none of the things that we think. It's all about God's promises, God's means of grace, and how we grow in grace and live lives that are pleasing to the Lord by loving him, love your neighbor as yourself, caring for the flock, teaching the truth, correcting error, doing what's necessary for the body of Christ to prosper, even if it means losing status in the eyes of the religious consumer or whoever it may be. You don't, it does, it's worthless. It's the hardest thing to learn in life is other people's opinion of us isn't what we need to be concerned about. And it's almost impossible to get rid of that. But we need to be at least uh, mitigating it and not be men pleasers, but be pleasing to the Lord. And that happens by his grace. That's all I can say. Um, I've seen rich people that could care less about it and you just go about their business and give if they decide to do that or everybody's got decisions to make in life. I, I, we're not going to say, oh, you decided to buy a nice house or you're a sinner. That just sounds to me like somebody else's greed and envy. That's, that's be, that's, we just got to look at binding and loosing and Christian liberty and then being generous. God teaches to be generous. Let's go to another verse. Verse 35. Here's something that's about that. And everything I showed you, Paul didn't just say this, he showed it. I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, quote, it is more blessed to give than to receive, unquote. Now I already have the answer here. I remember when I was in Bible college as a first year student, Reverend Phillips had a question where you, you, it was sort of like a thing where you tied a citation of Jesus to a certain passage. This one was in there. It was like a trick question. So people who thought it was in Mark was actually in Acts. This is not a direct citation of anything in any of the Gospels, which is significant. I think, Eric, did you talk about this recently? You haven't? Well, it must have been me. Yeah. I was talking to myself. <laughs> well, I've been working with this. But you did lay it out in a sermon where you talked about what is binding scripture. Okay? You know, the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament give us the New Testament and Moses and the prophets in the Old. The words of the Lord Jesus, even though Jesus Christ himself never wrote a book. Did you know that? If you didn't, you know now. He never wrote a book. It was his apostles and prophets that wrote. Paul wrote at the, under the authority of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Paul was directly taught by Jesus. Eric had a sermon on that. And there are other cases of this. And um, let's have someone else look one up. Um, who would like to look up a verse? Brian, you got a mic right there. Look up 1 Timothy 6.3. We ran into that. 
And talk about shooting down the hyper-dispensationalist doctrine. Let me tell you what that is. What is the hyper-dispensationalist doctrine? That the teachings of Jesus are not for the church. So that the church can safely ignore everything Jesus taught because it's not for us. Les Feldig is a teacher of that. As some people know, I I wrote an article about it. And in fact, somebody put my article up from their group to refute me, but I I read it, I don't know exactly how they refuted me. I just, they accused me of having never read Bollinger. They're right, I didn't, but I never claimed I did. Bollinger is the source of this in the 19th century. Okay, all right, do you have it? 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Read verse 4. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. Okay. Now notice, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another uh, strong hyperdispensationalist who claims that the only scriptures binding on the church are the pastoral epistles, the, or the prison epistles that Paul wrote after he was in Rome. Yeah. But now they got a problem. Because Timothy falls in that category. And there he says that the words of the Lord Jesus are binding and authoritative. And if you don't listen, you're in trouble. Should finish up with verse 5 as well. Go ahead. In constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That ties in. Yeah, that's the same doctrine. Godliness is gain. Well, we got a whole group in America that teaches that. Go ahead. I was just looking at your article that you wrote on this. It's volume 108 for those of that are interested because I just, I happen to be touching on this in my sermon. So ironically, Les Feldick, um, Bob deals with that issue. It's volume 108 of Critical Issues Commentary. Yeah. In fact, someone from here had asked me, Luann, was that you that ran across Les Feldick? Yeah, was, I think you sent me a letter or something asking about Les Feldick, so that's why I wrote the article. Because I figured it was influencing people I knew that I would write about it. So there you go. So now Jesus said it. So why is Paul saying that? Because Jesus didn't have anything to say to the church. Now, why would they say that? Some of you are looking with a quizzical look. Why would they say that? Because the doctrine is this. Jesus came and offered a kingdom to the Jews that had they accepted it, Jesus would have immediately taken reign on the throne in Jerusalem and the kingdom would have been Jewish. And if they accepted the kingdom, then all the red letters in the gospels would apply to that Jewish kingdom he would have established. But then it was also offered in Acts according to this theory, but eventually they didn't accept it. So therefore, the teachings that are binding on the church came later, somewhere later in Acts, or as one guy says, 
uh, only in the prison epistles. And then they're saying, well, parts of Corinthians do, but not others. Mainly 1 Corinthians 15, like 1 through 5 or whatever. They have certain ones that that's for the church. This isn't for the church. So I wrote an article about it. I said, no, the teachings of Jesus are binding on church. But what's this here? And what's this thing in 1 Timothy 6.3? The words of the Lord. I've been working and working on an article on the Great Commission. It's so clear in the Great Commission. Just this last week, I was working on teaching them to observe, to keep all that I commanded. How could you escape from that Christians desire to live according to the teachings of their own Lord? How could you just say, no, I don't need to, that was for somebody else. That's what they do. It's amazing. Usually they, that's subtracting from what God's revealed. At the end of Revelation, Eric talked about this too. There's also people who subtract. There's people who add. The ones who add have new apostles that speak binding words beyond Christ. These ones subtract from what was said. We don't want to subtract. We don't want to add. We want to keep. Tereo. Which means observe, to believe, and ask God for grace to live accordingly. Yes, Brother Eric. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, here's the thing when, you know, Jesus taught Paul personally. And so to me, the question would be, well, is what Paul is saying there, is that inconsistent in any way with what Jesus taught? And I've got here in Matthew 20, you know, uh, the uh, mother of John and James was asking for, you know, could her son sit on the right hand, you know, uh, of uh-huh. Jesus. They asked, uh-huh. and Jesus said, no, you know, you can drink, you, you will drink my cup, but I, it's not, it's the Father that will decide. But, but here he said this then also. Uh, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. And here's the point. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And so I would say that what Jesus taught is very consistent with what Paul is saying yeah. here. There's no inconsistency there. Yeah, Jesus came to serve. Give his life as a ransom for many. So just so we have that straight. The red letters, now we have red letter Christians, but they notoriously don't like all the red letters. The social gospel said, we're red letter Christians, but we don't believe there's any future judgment. Now, are there any red letters about hell? It's ironic, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, there's plenty. So they skipped those. So here is what needs to happen. What's called the whole counsel of God. We saw earlier in Acts 20. We need to just take seriously what the Bible says on everything, not claiming that we know everything in the Bible. We got it all perfectly explained, but neither do we do the uh, the little engine that couldn't. It can't be known. It can't be known. I don't think I can. I know I can't. And then you go write a book about everything you can't know. (laughs) All right. 
Does that make sense? Um, that doesn't make sense. So the point is this. Maybe I'm not claiming I know everything the Bible's ever said and I got the right interpretation of everything, but I have a desire to know what the author intended. Can we know what Paul meant by these words right here? Don't do the little engine that couldn't. Take the text that's the one we're studying and learn what it says. And if we can know the author's meaning there, maybe we can know the author's meaning on the next one. And if you do that your entire life, as you get old, you'll have a good understanding of the Bible by God's grace. Don't give up. Keep learning. So the words of the Lord Jesus that we have are given to us by his apostles and prophets, and they're not just the red letters. Is that right? That's what Eric taught. So the, now the word, value of work, the value of giving, more blessed to give than to receive. Dr. Polis says greed is a pull hill. Greed is a universal human problem, and the church leaders are not exempt the avarice among church leaders was a real problem in Asia Minor. That it was seems to be attested by the pastoral epistles, in which Paul insisted that a major qualification for church leaders should be their detachment from the love of money. We just read that. So beware. That doesn't mean the church has to be impoverished or that nobody can come but poor people, but it means we need to be taking the 10th commandment seriously. Now, you could say, well, Paul mentioned, uh, I would not have known coveting. I had the scripture now said, thou shalt not covet it. The Lutheran uh, view, which is really Pauline in there, that one gets everybody. You can't only, you, you, you can't even want to do it. Well, then who can be saved? Well, God, all things are possible. <laughs> We can trust in him and he forgives sins and he changes us. Let's go. Another verse. We're going to do this. <laughs> Acts 20, 38, 36 to 38. <clears throat> I hope that end was carried over from somewhere. Take it out. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and, and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And when they were, and they were accompanying to the ship. Now they were in Miletus, having come over uh, across the sea from the Italian peninsula, as we know it, and he was on his way to Jerusalem. So now he had said they, they wouldn't see him again, and they were kissing and weeping and embracing, very tactile, and a middle, middle Eastern sort of way, very uh, um, hands-on, loving and holding and kissing the blessed Apostle Paul. And uh, there's a, the fact is that Paul didn't butter them up, okay? This affection that we see here didn't happen because Paul just told them what they wanted to hear. He was very strong, forthright, and laid out what the church is supposed to look like. This is the longest address in the Acts that helps define the church for us. There's a long address of Paul, 
to the Jews. There's a long address to Paul, to uh, Gentile believers in Acts 13 and 14. There's a long address here to the elders of the church, to the church. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about the Jews, the Greeks, and the church of God. So when we see these addresses in Acts, and there'll be more to civil leaders, what Luke's um, tendency is, I should say his consistent procedure, is to have reports of addresses. There's an address to the Athenian philosophers, to the gen unsaved Gentiles. Now here, addressed to elders. There'll be little snippets of what Paul said to different groups. Somewhere there's one long one, or it could be Peter or Stephen. The long one is, uh, I mean, the paradigm, is that too big of a word? It's a, it's a idea. This is what Paul typically preached. Here's a lot of the details. The little one assumes that you know what the big one was because there's only so much space on a scroll. And so pay attention to the long speeches in Acts. They are informative about what was taught by certain types of people to other certain types of people. Here, Paul to the elders. And earlier, it was Paul in a mixed synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Or Peter on the day of Pentecost is a really long one that's important. Stephen, as I said in Acts 7. So pay attention to those. You learn a lot. So that is what we see here. And so when Paul has spoken to them, he laid out things forthrightly and clearly. If you want to know a biblical definition of the church, the message of the church and so on, you need to know Acts 20. Now, if you don't by now, you, well, I think we covered it uh, for months. <coughs> I think we do. Now, we do it in Timothy. There's, all, there's these places where it's spoken. Also, in the book of Ephesians, for example, 1 Corinthians, we're finding out, is a lot about the church. What would happen if we defined the church biblically? What would happen if we used the Bible itself with the tools that are now available better than ever for because of the discoveries in archaeology, language, Thank you for mentioning E.D. Hirsch, his material. The author determines the meaning, which is fundamentally obvious, but it isn't to a lot of academics. So we can know what the author meant. And if you know what the author meant, you know what God said. If you know what the Holy Spirit said, you know God's will and God's definition. So I think it's more than just possible, it's necessary that the church be defined biblically. And what you will find out, and I'm still involved in a study on this, hoping to continue to teach and write about it, is that the church that we know from church history is not the church defined biblically. That is one of the easiest things that you can determine. So the question is, why not practice what we know to be true? Is there a reason we can't practice 
what we know to be true. What Paul has just laid out here. Why can't? Why not? Let me issue a challenge, because I get this from the emails we get to critical issues. The assumption that almost, I mean, the vast majority of people that inquire about Christianity, whether they're new Christians or they just become one, is this. Where should I go? What should I join? The assumption is, if you want to be a good Christian, find something from church history and go join it. And so then they get these big categories. Join a Calvinist. Join an Arminian group. Join a Pentecostal group. Join a Baptist group. Join a infant baptism group. Join this. Become a Lutheran. Become a Methodist. Become a Presbyterian. Become a Charismatic. You got to join something. They came from church history. Well, how about defining church biblically and gathering with those who are born of God, who affirm the authority of Scripture, believe the, the priesthood of every believer, are willing to care for one another and live according to the things laid out in the Bible that do, in fact, define the church beliefs, practices, who's in it and who isn't. How, why is that impossible? I've been asking myself that question for decades. And the answer I come back with is not impossible. It's not possible. Part of what has to happen is binding and loosing. Is it a sin to own a building? And I had to think that one over. I don't think it's a sin. But neither, but it is a sin if the building owns us. That we can't do what God's called us to do because the building, we talk about a building owning us. I remember one roof leak, boiler went out consumed it. Unbelievable. I wasn't involved with deciding to buy it, but certainly I had to try to take care of it. We were able to get rid of that. It's okay to have a building, but we don't have to join something that's already been defined by other than biblical means. None of the people who have started movements in church history are real apostles. None of them. There are no apostles after the death of the biblical ones. None of them spoke beyond scripture, bindingly and authoritatively for God. None of them. Any one of the apostles and prophets or popes or bishops or patriarchs or whatever they're called, none of them can bindingly tell you or me or anybody else, you must do what I say to be pleasing to God and I can pronounce you anathema if you do not. You can say, no, no. I actually have a Bible, and I know you don't speak for God, and that you're wrong. So people come and say, are you a Calvinist? And now my response is, I do not care what Calvin said, other than if he's a sinner saved by grace, he may have something to contribute just as much as somebody else. You don't have to join these categories, because you can go to the scripture to find out whether God ever elected anybody. By the way, the Bible says he has. If that makes you mad, then ask about your own heart. Why am I mad that God showed favor to me? It seems rather ungrateful, but 
that's somebody else's problem. The fact is you don't have to join something, but we do have to be pleasing to God. We do have to love one another. And so they loved Paul. He told them things that were hard for them to hear. It didn't make them hate him. It made, him love, it made them love him all the more, and they embrace him. Now, the church of Ephesus, we've, I want to look at one more aspect of the church of Ephesus that we haven't covered yet. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. I didn't make a slide for this because I wanted to end the Acts one here. Revelation 2, 1. Ephesus shows up yet again after even the pastoral epistles. Timothy was in Ephesus. But Revelation's even later as John when he was on the Isle of Patmos. And so there are these messages to the churches. One of his, Ephesus. Let's read it. Revelation 2, starting with verse 1. Here it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, who is that that holds the stars and walks among the lampstands? Jesus? Eric, you taught Revelation. Do you agree? Yes, amen. It's Jesus. All right. So Jesus is speaking to the church. So here's some more words of Jesus. Verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Now, doing so would be in keeping with what we learned ought to be done in Acts, in Ephesians, and in 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus, right? Okay, so they did what they should. Verse 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown worried. They didn't give up the battle. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Verse 5, therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at the first, or else I'm coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. So here is a call for a faithful church in most ways, in some sense, I don't know how this corporately applies, but it does, unless you repent. And the charge was leaving one's first love. I know Eric taught about it a long, long time ago. Let's discuss that. What does that mean, to leave your first love? It seems serious, so we better know what it means, lest we do it. Okay, Jesus himself. I know the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, Luann, do you want to bring the mic to her? Well, we brought up, excuse me, so many of these already this morning, but oftentimes some of these uh, wayward churches kind of fly under a banner of what their message really is, like the health and wealth prosperity gospel. It becomes you don't have enough faith if you don't have these things. If you have liberation theology, you're 
focuses on equality and equity, not the gospel. If you have the hyper-dispensationalist, you have the rightly dividing the word versus actually the gospel presentation. So, so many times they present their flag versus the gospel. Okay. So that would be schismatic and having other things that are not to be central. Anybody else want to comment on what it would mean to leave your first love? <laughs> I hope I'm not that intimidating that nobody wants to venture. Eric, what, how, what was your reading on it when you talked through it? You know, it is it is tied to the love of Christ. I think it also is tied to the way we love one another and bear mm -hmm. one another's burdens. Yeah. Right. And so it's not an either or. Some will say, well, it's only the love of Christ or it's only the love of fellow believers. It's really both. And so as we love our fellow brothers and sisters, we're really loving Christ. And so think of Christ and the fellow believers as united as a indivisible corporate solidarity. So if you love Christ, it's going to be shown in the way that you show your love to your fellow brothers and sisters. And it's more than likely a lack of love demonstrated to the fellow brothers and sisters that's being emphasized here. But it is tied to a lack of love of Christ in that Christ purchased all believers with his blood. So I hope that makes I, sense. I totally agree. Very good reading. That's a very good reading. Loving we can say we love Jesus enough to reject all the false apostles. He didn't send them. But have an unloving attitude towards brothers and sisters in Christ as if they are of no import. And um, the, the love of Christ in the... Let's look, put it this way. The love of Christ, the love of the truth talks about in Thessalonians, those who do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, they end up deceived. And the love of the Lord's flock. The fellow believers that were, are attached to the head, Jesus Christ, yes. Yeah, I just probably wanted to expand on what everybody has said. You know, the churches, the, the organizational church, they just get off on all these tangents like Luann was mentioning, <clears throat> and that's just awful. Uh, and it is our first love is our, uh, the joy of our salvation in Christ. And then that expresses itself in obedience to him. We, we, we love his word. We love the word of God. And, you know, if you, we, we all have times that we just don't feel as as uh, zealous for the Lord, you know, and I, I think the key is to get, just spend time in God's word, and then also we need each other. We, we need good, solid uh, Christian fellowship that's genuine, you know, and, and we need that. And I've just had on my heart for a long time now, John 14, verse 21. It just keeps coming back. John 14, 21, go <laughs> and ahead. I'll, I'll read it to you. I, I'm not much of a memori memorization guy, but... Uh, Jesus is speaking here in John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him or, or manifest yeah. myself to him. And, you know, th that's the key is, is just stay in God's word. It's and, relational. And build each other up yeah. as well. Yeah. It's relational. Absolutely. Um, good one. That's a good reading. That's a good cross-reference. Yes, Rich. Yeah, I think at our old church back at TCF, there were people, a segment, a group, 
that called us negative Nellies, that were like, oh, they're always negative, and they're always calling people out as being false teachers and false this and false that. Well, if you read the book of Revelation in the seven churches, it's calling out these churches because you accepted bad teaching into your church. So I think it's, it is imperative that we do call out bad teaching. In other words, we don't need to feel, I, I was beginning to feel a little guilty, like, whoa, am I just being so negative here? But I think that it's imperative that we are negative towards bad teaching and do call out bad teaching yeah. so that we can get to the good teaching. Well, as you notice right here in Ephesus, Jesus' word to the church, he commended them for calling out the false apostles. But that doesn't mean you have to choose uh, that and then to be unloving toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no choice that needs to be made. The choice is the whole counsel of God. I got one more here. I got a couple minutes. No, we haven't finished this church. Okay, we don't want to leave our first love, which is the Lord, his truth of the gospel, the church, and the love for the lost world is through gospel preaching. So let's go on here. Um, uh, Yeah, you do, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they hate something Jesus hates. All right? So that's also an answer there. The deeds of the Nicolaitan. Then it says, which is to all of them, he who has an ear, let him hear. Now, hear in that context means listen and obey. I was looking at that in Matthew. To listen, hear. Tereo is another word. Akuo is here. Tereo means to uh, keep and observe. Now let's figure out these Nicolaitans if we can. They come up again. Go um, to Revelation 2.14 while you're there. I got a couple minutes. 2.14. There was a guy named Nicholas mentioned once in Acts. We don't know if this is who it was. And it was his doctrine that was going around. But the Nicolaitans, uh, there's an interesting name link that might just be coincidental, maybe significant. Let me read this. Nicolaitans are linked to the teaching of Balaam. Here we go. Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you. This is a different church. Because you have some there holding the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Nicolaitans come up twice and in here in the context of Balaam. Now Balaam's name means not of the people or against the people. This may not be significant. Somebody said this before, uh, the, but uh, Nicolaitans would be from the words uh, conquer and laity. So some people say conquer the laity. I don't know that that's significant just because of the name, but Balaam's is because it comes up in the Old Testament. And if, the link, if there's a link between Balaam and Nicolaitans, then we got a clue here what's going on. And the sins that are listed in later in chapter 2, 14 and 15, are the very ones that we're seeing in 1 Corinthians. Now, I just finished the research and so I marked up my Greek and got it ready to start a PowerPoint for 
the 31st of December when I'll be back in 1 Corinthians, and it's all right in there, okay? That's what was going on in Corinth. They literally did not see a problem with temple prostitution and eating in the pagan temples. So the sort of immorality and things offered to idols that's rebuked in Revelation, calling it uh, or linking it to Balaam's attitude, is found right in 1 Corinthians, although Balaam's not mentioned. Now, Balaam, what did Balaam do? He took money to curse Israel. <laughs> and Balaam was a clever guy because he kept opening his mouth and the Spirit of God would come on him and he blessed Israel. What are you doing? I'm paying you to curse them. You keep blessing them. Here, try this spot. Mountains are considered significant. Come over here. Look, maybe the curse will come out. What comes out? A blessing. So Balaam said, okay, I'll earn my money. Listen to what I have to say. Now, this we learned from this. They're blessed by God. I can't do a thing about it. Here's what you can do. Offer them your pagan women. And what happened was they ended up hooked up with the Moabites and the Moabite women. Now, I'll talk, preach on some of this in an application on that Sunday, the 31st. And God started killing them. Remember the Phinehas episode with the spear? And he succeeded. I can't curse Israel, but you can just offer them your women. They'll fall for it. And it happened. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, both of pride of life. There's something that'll shoot them down. So the teaching of Balaam, Nicolaitans, as we see here, had to do with teaching that compromise with the pagan culture would not be a problem and that God wouldn't judge it. And it's just flat out false. So there is the last time. Now that was to another church, but the Nicolaitans are mentioned in uh, the one to Ephesus. So I hope we've learned something about the nature of the church. And I would say, God help us not to leave our first love, to have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for God, the triune God of the Bible, a love for the truth, she said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. To not welcome the love of the truth is to be an apostate deceived by Antichrist and to love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another. And those things will keep us in good stead. And I will say this, it's relational. It's relational. I was going to go to this slide, but obviously there's no time. It's not geographical. You can't get on a plane and go somewhere and then find the church. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches your word to us. May we search the scriptures to affirm and understand what you've said. Bless Pastor Eric as he teaches the word to us. And may we walk in love toward one another, toward what you've said. And Lord, may we love you with our whole heart. We need you to fill us with that love. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.